Hi, this is Nyla in for Jen. Just a quick note before we start the show. The news is rapidly developing and things might have changed by the time you hear this episode. So for the latest news, tune into your public radio station and find updates at npr.org. This is the 1A Podcast. I'm Nyla Boodoo of Axios Today, in for Jen White, and you're listening to the News Roundup. Congress had a visitor on Wednesday, and he had a very particular ask for them and for President Biden. And as the leader of my niche, I'm addressing the President Biden. You are the leader of the niche, of your great nation. I wish you to be the leader of the world. Being the leader of the world means to be the leader of peace. Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky appeared via Zoom before a joint session of Congress. His speech prompted another round of weapons and aid from President Biden, but without taking more drastic measures, is it enough to stop Russia? We'll get into that. Plus, a big bucket, big budget package passes without nearly $16 billion in COVID aid. What will that mean for our pandemic response? And here comes the sun permanently. The Senate has okayed a measure that would lock in daylight saving time year round, an extra hour of sunshine or a lost hour of sleep. We want to know how you feel, but first let's bring in our roundup guests. Eva McKend is a national politics reporter with CNN. Hello, Eva. Hi, good to be here. Leanne Caldwell is a Capitol Hill correspondent for NBC News. Leanne, thanks for joining us. So great to be here. And Jeff Mason is the White House correspondent for Reuters. Jeff, always a pleasure. Great to be with you. Jeff, let's start with that Zelensky speech to Congress. First, what specifically was he asking for? Well, he was asking for one thing that he's not, almost certainly not going to get, which is he made a direct appeal to Congress and to President Biden for a no-fly zone over Ukraine. And that's been an ask uh, that he's been making for some time. And he just reinforced that request uh, in his very powerful and, and dramatic speech. And it was a speech that had, I think, an impact on all of the people in the room who were listening to it. And and others watching online elsewhere, and it had an impact on the White House and President Biden. But uh, President Biden did not change his position on a no-fly zone and um, has made clear for, for some time that the reason he doesn't want to enforce a no-fly zone over Ukraine with, with U.S. planes is that he's afraid that that would be interpreted by Russia as uh, an, an act of aggression from NATO, from the United States, that could lead to World War III. So Zelensky knew that going in, and he knew that before he asked for it, but he wanted to use the opportunity of that address before Congress to say, look, we really think you should do this, and and the White House did not change its position. That said, uh, he also asked for more weapons um, and and more help broadly to fight uh, the the Russian invasion, and the United States is going to provide that and is providing that, and, and President Biden detailed a lot of those things as well on the same day in his response to Zelensky's remarks. To that point of that no-fly zone, I wanted to play Press Secretary Jen Psaki, uh, how she put how the White House is standing firmly against this. How President Biden makes decisions is through the prism of our own national security. Uh, and, and as we've said before, a no-fly zone would require implementation. It would require us uh, potentially shooting down Russian planes, NATO shooting down Russian planes, uh, and we are not interested in getting into World War III. Leanne, so that's the White House's position. How are U.S. lawmakers talking about a no-fly zone? 
pretty much the same way, ex- except for a couple outliers who still say that uh, a no-fly zone or a partial no-fly zone should be implemented by the U.S., For the most part, most lawmakers, House, Senate, Republican, Democrat, think that a NATO U.S. enforced no-fly zone is not a good thing, that it will be an escalatory move and something that they don't want to do. Now, as far as a Ukrainian enforced no-fly zone, that is something that lawmakers are much more supportive of. And that's when it gets into the conversation of providing the Ukrainians with the defense mechanisms they need, such as these Russian-era MiG-29 jets that they have not been able to get yet. Now, there's a school of thought on Capitol Hill that says, if the Ukrainians are asking for it, let's give it to them absent a no-fly zone, right? But then there's others who are discussing the nuance of the conversation and that the administration is having to think about when they go through this process. We know that the administration still has not signed off and is not going to at this point on the transfer of these these Russian planes from Poland, perhaps to the U.S., to the Ukrainians. It hasn't happened yet. There's still a lot of pressure on Capitol Hill for 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 the administration to do that. So, but as far as the no-fly zone is concerned, there's very few lawmakers who support that. And what to that point of just the idea of Ukrainian assistance, hours after President Zelensky's address, President Biden did respond. Let's hear how he responded. The American people are answering President Zelensky's call for more help, more weapons for Ukraine to defend itself, more tools to fight Russian aggression. So President Biden pledged an additional $800 million in U.S. aid. That's on top of the $200 million that he authorized on Sunday. Eva, how is that money going to be spent then? So we are getting a sense that it is going to be used for anti-aircraft systems, uh, anti-armor missile systems to destroy tanks, uh, small arms, um, rounds of ammunition, drones, uh, a plethora of uh, devices. And that I think, is what we're going to continue to see in the months ahead. This is the level of support that President Biden has expressed that we're comfortable with, something where we can uh, aid Ukraine, but also keep our own national interests in mind as well. And earlier this week, um, President Biden signed a $1.5 trillion funding bill that allocates money for a bit more than the government's operations. This bill also includes historic funding, $13.6 billion to address Russia's invasion of Ukraine and the impact on surrounding countries. Jeff, what about that money? How is that going to be spent? Well, that that includes some of the things that we're that we've already been talking about. It includes that that peace for Ukraine, and it was a broader spending bill that uh, needed to get signed, and and so they they got it done. What was interesting, um, one piece about that bill that was not in it, and we might get to this later in the show, is is COVID funding. Uh, the government, the White House, had been asking for an additional twenty two and a half billion dollars to fight the pandemic, and lawmakers could not agree on that. Republicans largely thought it wasn't necessary. Democrats were unhappy with how it was going to be spent, so they stripped it out of that bill. And that's going to be an ongoing discussion now, and it's something the White House is raising red flags over. So in general, that bill had a bunch of stuff in it, um, including the Ukraine funding, but it did not have COVID. 
And we are going to talk about that COVID funding later, Jeff. Uh, We're speaking with Reuters' Jeff Mason, CNN's Eva McKend, and Leanne Caldwell of NBC News. To the point of Republicans, a group of Republican senators led by South Carolina's Lindsey Graham wants the U.S. to do more. I trust President Zelensky's judgment about what would help him in real time more than anybody else on the planet right now. Senator Graham's urging President Biden to send more weaponry to Ukraine. Leanne, to the point you were making earlier, all of this weaponry is to for the Ukrainian military to defend itself. That's the distinction we're drawing here of keeping the U.S. out of this, right? Yeah, that's absolutely right. Um, and that is what the administration says. These are all defensive weapons. Anything that can be turned into an offensive weapon is gives the administration a lot of pause. And that's part of the discussion with the MiG-29s, the Russian aircraft. Now, as far as Senator Graham is concerned, we know how hawkish he is. He has been very out front, uh, leading the Republican Party and being kind of the most outspoken vocal voice um, in support of doing whatever the Ukrainians needs. One very telling moment in that press conference was he was asked about the switchback drone, something new that has been brought up that the administration is... uh, I think they're still thinking about providing. I'm not sure if they if they if they sent them yet or if they're planning on it. But um, Lindsey Graham said, "I don't know what that is, but it sounds great, and let's give it to the Ukrainians." And so he's kind of on one end of the spectrum here, even though most of the Congress is wanting to do as much as the Ukrainians need, um, Lindsey Graham is willing to go much further. But there's lots of, you know, Congress also has a very limited role here. Um, They can talk a lot and they can pass legislation, but most of this is in the hands of the administration. Um, Something that the Congress is passing or passed last night in the House anyway was the uh, removing Russia from most favored nation trade status. And that legislation is headed to the Senate. And that is actually one thing that the Congress needs to do, that the administration needs Congress to do to punish Russia. Um, But for the most part, uh, the Congress is the cheerleader here, and they are acting as a, a means to pressure the administration to go further. In many aspects, they've been successful, including on the oil ban. Before we take a break, I just want to get to uh, Hillary was tweeting, why is it important that President Biden states that Putin is a war criminal? Eva? So for a long time, this was something he rejected because this is a very specific and technical designation. But I think ultimately the pressure and the horrors of the atrocities that we're seeing got to him. And that is why he ultimately said Putin is a war criminal. But uh, the White House quickly walked that back uh, because it is a specific designation. It is not a feeling. It is a process that uh, that the world must go through. And so just saying someone is a war criminal obviously does not make them one because there is a whole process at The Hague. Exactly. We'll be back with more of the News Roundup. Remember to join future conversations, download our 1A Vox Pop app, and leave us a voicemail. Support for NPR and the following message come from BetterHelp, offering online counseling. BetterHelp therapist Hesu Joe knows that lockdown has been hard on us as humans. We as people are hardwired to connect with others, which is why this whole time is so difficult. The connection that happens between people can be very powerful, and how healing it can be to have 
a healthy relationship with someone. To get matched with a counselor within 48 hours and save 10%, go to betterhelp.com slash 1A. Support for NPR and the following message come from BetterHelp, offering online counseling. BetterHelp therapist Hesu Joe knows that lockdown has been hard on us as humans. We as people are hardwired to connect with others, which is why this whole time is so difficult. The connection that happens between people can be very powerful and how healing it can be to have a healthy relationship with someone. To get matched with a counselor within 48 hours and save 10%, go to betterhelp.com slash 1A. Over this last year and a half, the world's been through a lot. So on this season of the StoryCorps podcast, we'll hear stories reminding us that even when times are hard, we can still begin again. Listen to our new season wherever you get your podcasts. We're rounding up some of the week's biggest headlines. Let's get back to the conversation. Jeff, right now, President Biden is on a call with China's Xi Jinping talking about Russia. Secretary of State Antony Blinken has said Biden will tell Xi the U.S. will, quote, impose costs on China for supporting the Russian invasion. What kind of costs might those be? And can you also remind us, for people who don't know, what role China is playing in this geopolitical calculus around Russia and Ukraine? Sure. Well, to take that last question first, um, China has not joined the rest of the world in implementing sanctions. And when I say the rest of the world, I should be more specific, particularly the United States and Europe, uh, in imposing really harsh sanctions on Russia that is pushing its economy towards uh, towards near collapse. I mean, certainly the ruble has uh, nearly collapsed the Russian currency. China has not done that. Um, and Russia is asking for help from China. And I thought Antony Blinken, the Secretary of State's comments yesterday that you were just referring to, uh, were pretty specific in saying, if you do help uh, Russia, we are going to impose costs. And to your question about what those could be, he didn't lay those out. We might get some more details about that uh, after the conclusion of President Biden's call. But that could be anywhere from U.S. sanctions to... Um, you know, no doubt some kind of financial penalties in the same way that the United States is implementing financial penalties on Russia. So it's, it's a kind of a, I don't want to use the word escalation, but it's bringing up the tension uh, between the United States and China as well in the middle of this massive um, conflict between Russia and Ukraine and the rest of the world. Um, and what the United States wants to say and what President Biden, no doubt, will make clear in that call is um, you need to be on the side of, of the West uh, in, in standing up to Russia on this. But China is reluctant to that because they, they or to do that, I should say, because they don't want the West telling them what to do. And then you have question marks over whether or not China intends to do something similar someday uh, to Taiwan or or other areas that it considers part of its territory. This week, the White House announced that President Biden's going to travel to Brussels. That's next Thursday to attend a NATO summit meeting. He'll also go to a European Union meeting happening that same day. Eva, what's the goal of those meetings? Well, he wants to make the case that he is succeeding at bringing uh, NATO together, our European allies. I think this is a really unique moment in that 
often NATO is associated with uh, dissension and confusion. But at this time, in the response to Ukraine, there has been a lot of unity. And so this is an opportunity for President Biden to really look like a leader on the world stage and continue to bring our allies together as it relates to next steps in how to respond to this international crisis. Leanne, to that point of a response, so far, Ukraine has prompted a lot of international meetings at the UN, at the EU, at NATO, which have resulted in a lot of formal condemnations. But does that translate to an effect on the ground? Well, NATO and the U.S. is providing a lot of aid, um, humanitarian assistance, uh, defense systems, um, defense aid. And that is pretty much as far as NATO is willing to go at this point and the United States. Um, the U.S. is only in NATO are only going to respond if a NATO country is or territory is attacked. And that has always been the red line. Um, the president has been very clear about that. Um, you know, Jake Sullivan, the national security advisor, was on the Sunday shows last weekend, and he was asked by multiple Sunday show hosts about that. And one specific question was, well, what if there's an errant missile uh, fired by, Russell, by, by Russia that that hits Poland, for example, and it was a mistake. And he said, any sort of attack, mistake or not, is will invoke the will invoke Article Five, which is a NATO response. And so, NATO and the U.S. are willing to provide as much as many resources as they deem necessary, um, as far as they are in defensive in nature. But that is where they stop, um, unless they are provoked by Russia. Before we move on from Ukraine, we're mourning three journalists who were killed there this week. On Sunday, American journalist Brent Renault was shot and killed outside of Kyiv. And on Monday, two members of a Fox News crew were killed when the vehicle they were in was caught in fighting near the town of Harenka. A third member of the team was seriously wounded. Let's jump to that back to that $1.5 trillion spending bill signed by President Biden this week because there's a lot more in it than just the $14 billion earmarked for Ukraine. Eva, broadly, what else is covered in this? So it also includes $730 billion in non-defense spending. That's, you know, a whole host of social initiatives, um, $782 billion in defense funding. The issue, I think, with bills this large, they're known as, it's known as an omnibus, is that it's more than 2,000 pages. So we're going to really learn what's in it, um, <laughs> continue to learn what's in it in the weeks and months ahead. Uh, what what didn't get included, though, was, was the COVID funding. And it was interesting to see the sort of fracas among House Democrats here in the final hour. And some progressives really upset by this. But ultimately, in order for this bill to get passed um, with bipartisan buy-in and with the Ukraine aid, that COVID relief funding had to be dropped in the final hour. And you can see the frustration of the White House on this with them, you know, uh, essentially, it, it kind of seemed like a subtle threat when they said that we might not be able to continue uh, testing and other COVID-related measures uh, because that funding was not included in, in this bill. So a little, little bit upping the ante with Congress uh, to push them uh, to maybe find another uh, mechanism to, uh, to pass that COVID funding. Leanne, how likely is that? It's going to be really difficult. Um, so to get a little deeper into it, the reason the COVID funding was dropped is because, well, first of all, this 
as Eva mentioned, 2,000-plus page bill was dropped on lawmakers hours before the government was going to shut down. You know, a couple days, but not enough time to read what's in this legislation. This legislation funds the entire government for the for the year, for the fiscal year. And at the very last minute attached to it was an administration request of 15 billion dollar, nearly $15 billion, which was less than the administration wanted. And this was something that was negotiated just between Senate and Republican, Senate and House leaders. So McConnell and Schumer and Pelosi and McCarthy and some of the top appropriations people. And Republicans demanded that this $15 billion in COVID funding, which they didn't want, they wanted an audit first of all the trillions of dollars that had already previously been spent on COVID uh, before they spend any more money. So the compromise was that this money has to be paid for. And so the way they were going to pay for it is in part taking money from already allocated funds given to states in a previous COVID bill. So that means that 30 states were going to lose hundreds of millions of dollars that was already allocated to them that they had not yet received. And so members, House members of those states, Democrats specifically, were furious. And they said, this is not acceptable. My state cannot lose hundreds of millions of dollars. Um, And so it was pulled. How it moves forward from now here, it's a very difficult question. I was talking to uh, House Democrats yesterday and the ones, they have not been given any answers. Uh, It still is going to have to be paid for. It's if it's going to pass the Senate um, because you're going to need 10 Republicans. And the leadership is trying to figure out other ways to pay for it, but they have not communicated what those ways are yet with their members. And so they're working with the administration. They're working furiously to try to figure out how to provide this money and pay for it. And they haven't yet figured it out yet. And Leanne, just because this is so complicated, what is at stake right now? What will be lost in terms of funding? Well, the administration says they're going to have to stop paying for uh, people to be tested for for vaccines, um, for all of these uh, uh, measures to keep people um, testing and on top of on top of COVID, so that it's not coming out of people's pockets. In addition, it's spending. It was supposed to spend hundreds of millions of dollars, and I think actually billions of dollars on COVID treatments, not just vaccine development, but also uh, monoclonal antibodies and all the new treatments that are coming out for COVID. And so the and the administration says it's also necessary to prepare for the next variant of COVID as well. And so the administration and Democratic leadership say that this money is extremely important to help keep fighting this disease. Um, and you know, because this one funding mechanism, the government funding bill has come and gone and passed and been signed by the president, that was their opportunity to get to more easily get this money through. Now there's just not another vehicle. It's going to have to be a standalone bill. And it makes it very difficult to get enough members on both sides of the aisle to pass this legislation. And the administration is saying that it's extremely urgent to do so. And in this standalone bill, Eva, we're also seeing things like funding for the uninsured program? That's right. Uh, That is another uh, crucial measure that is included. But I think that, you know, Democratic leadership or leadership in general that was eyeing this had to be in a fantasy land if they thought that they would be able to get this through with the funding for Ukraine. Because the pushback that we've seen from Republicans 
on further COVID spending has been pretty uh, consistent. They have consistently called for a slowdown, uh, for accountability in terms of the funding, uh, more questions about how the money is being allocated. So I think it is no surprise if you've been following this that ultimately they weren't able to get this included in the larger package. Jordan emails, we all know the polar opposition in Congress on most issues. The hatred and flat-out lies spread there and across the nation have us actually discussing another civil war at times. My own strong views aside, I sincerely wish that Congress could bring in professional mediators at the highest level just to get movement again. Jeff, to Jordan's point, how do we see movement happening here? Because this is actually the first time, right, that we've seen coronavirus funding held up. I mean, it's a good point. The, there has been bipartisan support really since 2020, uh, since the onset of the pandemic for uh, money to go to fight against uh, this pandemic. And so it, it, is, it is a shift that that, um, that, that piece is now, uh, be, I mean, the whole pandemic has been political. I don't need to tell uh, the listeners that, but this, the, the idea of funding it has largely been something that lawmakers on both sides have been able to get behind. And Leanne did a terrific job of explaining uh, some of the, the intricacies of that debate on the Hill. I think the one thing I would um, add to that is just that the, the, the White House has really, uh, I think, sounded the alarm in the last week or so because not only will it not, it was, it was going to put in an order next week for uh, the monoclonal antibodies from AstraZeneca uh, treatments that that Leanne also mentioned, and it's it's going to have real, actual, specific impacts on their ability to pay for things if they don't get that cash. So I think that's one reason why you're hearing the White House uh, making a bigger deal out of it. But to your, you know, to the the, the listeners uh, tweet or comment about um, mediators, <laughs> you know, I'm not sure that's going to happen, but. It, it does go to a broader point of um, you know, President Biden, when he came into office, really wanted to tap to tap in on his experience as a senator and, and his, I think, sometimes nostalgic view of working together and not only bringing the country together, but bringing Congress together. And that, that just has not happened. Leanne, we have seen bipartisan support for the president in some ways or in terms of Ukraine. Obviously, that hasn't translated to COVID. We just saw that this week. I just wonder, especially when we're at this phase of the pandemic where we see mask mandates dropping and cases still on the decline here in the U.S., even though we know we're not seeing that necessarily in Europe or in Asia, where does that leave the urgency for lawmakers to do something here? Well, it depends on which party you belong to, really, um, as far as COVID is concerned. I mean, Democrats want they even the Democrats who helped to um, pull this 15 billion in COVID funding from the government funding bill last week. They didn't do it because they didn't want COVID aid. They did it. They did it because they didn't like how it was being paid for. They thought their states were going to lose money. And so those Democrats still are trying think that additional funds and being on top of COVID is still really, really critical and really important. Um, and that's kind of the problem here because now that there's not a clear path of how to pass this, um, Republicans who don't want more money, they don't want to spend more money, they 
are most of the time past COVID. Um, they don't, they think trillions of dollars have gone to it, which it has, and it's led to inflation, they say, and that the economy just doesn't need more of this. Um, they will try to block it or at least extract a lot of demands in, in, response to it if they're going to let this pass. And so it just becomes very politically tricky moving forward. Um, You know, also related to COVID, we still see it being a political issue. The trucker convoy is still roaming around D.C., um, spent, you know, (laughs) wasting a lot of gas driving on the highways around here. Um, And so this is still a politically potent issue, especially for the base on the right. Jeff, if COVID case numbers change here in the U.S., does that conversation change or not really? Good question. Uh, it, it certainly might. I mean, we are, the, the, the atmosphere that we're in right now in terms of the White House asking for, for more money is during a period when states around, you know, all over the country, all 50 states, I think, have dropped um, mask mandates and have loosened restrictions as people um, enjoy the fact that cases have come down and, and are feeling um, the the lightness of having a little bit of a return to normalcy. But the threat of cases coming back or, or going back up is certainly very real, um, as, as we see with the cases in Europe and Asia. And honestly, as we've seen just even this week with people around the White House coming down with it. I mean, the second gentleman, um, Vice President Harris's husband, Doug Emhoff, uh, tested positive for COVID this week, as did the visiting prime minister of Ireland, leading to all of the all of the events that were planned for him um, yesterday on St. Patrick's Day to be to be made virtual. We're rounding up some of the week's biggest news. A reminder to have your questions answered on future topics, or just to let us know what you think. Tweet us at one A. We'll be back with more after the break. Support for NPR and the following message come from BetterHelp, offering online counseling. BetterHelp therapist Hesu Joe knows that lockdown has been hard on us as humans. We as people are hardwired to connect with others, which is why this whole time is so difficult. The connection that happens between people can be very powerful and how healing it can be to have a healthy relationship with someone. To get matched with a counselor within 48 hours and save 10%, go to betterhelp.com slash 1A. Over this last year and a half, the world's been through a lot. So on this season of the StoryCorps podcast, we'll hear stories reminding us that even when times are hard, we can still begin again. Listen to our new season wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to the News Roundup. Let's get back to the conversation. There was actually lots of conversation this week around TPS, in particular, Senator Menendez highlighting some of these things that we were talking about here. Yeah, he released a statement following this saying that he remained troubled that black migrants uh, from places like Cameroon and Ethiopia are often excluded when these decisions are made. Um, You talked about Ukraine, um, that decision being made very swiftly uh, with Afghanistan. It took a couple of months. But why isn't there 
there's this same kind of swift movement when it comes to black migrants. I think that uh, sometimes Democratic administrations are worried about TPS and the the line of lines of attack from Republicans who argue that there's nothing temporary about temporary protected status, that this allows for migrants from all over the world to stay indefinitely. But I think that this uh, this the slowness of movement when it comes to black migrants are certainly worth examination. And that's why uh, Senator Menendez, chair of the Foreign Relations Committee, elevated uh, those countries. And why did it take six months for TPS to be provided for Afghan refugees? If we're thinking about the Taliban taking over, that was six months ago. But this is happening now? Well, I think because the vast majority of Afghan migrants, I believe, were paroled into the United States and allowed uh, to apply for work permits. So I think that this is really going to apply to approximately 2,000, um, uh, mostly people like foreign uh, foreign students, international students whose visas could expire. I think that there were uh, multiple tracks for um, uh, Afghans to come here and be able to make that transition. And so I think this is why it took a little bit longer, but also maybe some hesitancy also to move forward with with a TPS designation. TPS is politically very sensitive and Democrats um, historically have been uh, nervous about uh, pulling this trigger, so to speak. Let's continue talking about immigration. The Biden administration is partially pulling back on a controversial Trump-era immigration policy that's after after a Texas court ruling that would have forced the administration to deport unaccompanied migrant children without an asylum screening. Leanne, can you explain what was in this original policy? Um, So what the administration is doing, they are still willing – they're not going to deport uh, unaccompanied children, but – There's a lot of protest from members of Congress, especially Democrats and especially the Congressional Hispanic Caucus, that there still will be a lot of people who will be deported, including family units. Um, And so this is causing them a lot of concern. Um, And the administration is politically in a very difficult spot on immigration. Um, it, It The president's poll numbers do not do well when it comes to immigration um, and security on the border. This is something that Republicans continue to attack um, President Biden over. Um, Meanwhile, uh, the administration is trying to balance um, these different Trump-era tactics used to keep people out and to control migration, illegal migration or undocumented migration over the border. And... um, And he's getting a lot of pressure, President Biden, from um, the Hispanic caucus, uh, from activists, from progressive groups who say that he needs to do more and that he is just really uh, reinstating and maintaining a lot of these Trump policies. Jeff, what are the other implications of this policy ending? Well, I would say, number one, they're they're sort of challenging the court order because the, the Texas court said you can't exclude unaccompanied minors from uh, from this, so they need to be deported too. And this is, I'm the last person who can give a really great explanation of Title 42, but the, the Centers for Disease Control, which is part of this, came out and said, we are, we are now saying unaccompanied minors can stay and, and we're, we aren't going to 
um, we aren't going to send them away because the, the initial rule was basically using COVID as an excuse and saying because of COVID, we, we, need to, we need to send these families, we need to send these people away. And the new CDC order from um, Rochelle Walensky, who's the leader of that, uh, of the CDC, cited the fact that cases in the United States are coming down uh, and that cases are coming down in some of these countries uh, from which the, the migrants are coming. We got an email from Barbara who says, I'm curious why the Senate found it so easy to pass the daylight savings time bill, but are having such a difficult time passing voter rights. Eva, this was a unanimous move by the Senate this week, correct? Yeah, I mean, at least we can rest assured that Congress can really agree when it comes to the most pressing issues um, we are facing in this country. But yes, this did pass unanimously. Uh, It would end the practice of setting clocks back one hour in the fall. I think that uh, senators had a little bit of fun with this. We saw many floor speeches uh, celebrating this move. And even uh, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi suggesting that she would be willing to to take this up pretty quickly, uh, saying that she associated with a statement from New Jersey Congressman uh, Frank Pallone, who said, um, who essentially argued that the practice uh, was silly. But, you know, doctors who study sleep patterns, they want a word. They are concerned. Uh, certain parts of the country, um, it would be 8 a.m., 9 a.m. and still dark outside. So I think that that is why this practice has been uh, part of our, our life here in the, the U.S. Uh, since, I think, 1918 for a very, very long time. So it would be a monumental shift uh, if this does actually move forward. Right. It sounds like everyone has lots of feelings about this. A star's tweeting, daylight saving is insane. We pretend it's later than it is for two-thirds of the year, and now we want to make it permanent? Businesses can have people come in earlier without the entire country changing their clocks. And Holly tweets, if anything, make standard time permanent. We here on the western edge of eastern time in Michigan are actually an hour behind the east coast in daylight. People love it in the summer, but when it gets dark after 10 p.m., I do not like the dark mornings. Leanne, is this likely to pass the House? Just to be clear, this has to pass the House. President Biden has to sign it. And we tried to do this in the 70s and it didn't work, right? Yeah, they it did happen in the seventies, and then they quickly changed it back to to daylight to having two time frames, I guess, in in the year. I don't know if it's going to pass the house, and I don't know if the house is going to take it up and win. Um, yeah, Speaker Pelosi seemed open to it. Um, Leader Hoyer also seemed open to it, but he was also very confused. At um, at the interest in it, and indicated that it's not necessarily a priority, and it passing the Senate unanimously um, was a bit of a mistake. Actually, I was when it happened. I was actually speaking to Senator John Thune, the number two Republican um, in the Senate. So his job is to help set the floor schedule, count votes, that sort of thing. And we got the alert that. It just passed the Senate with no vote. It was just unanimous consent. And he was shocked. He said, what? That just happened? And and then he said, it actually passed? So um, and the, after the fact, there was a lot of concern, and some people were outraged that it did go through. Um, it was something that, didn't, that people didn't catch. 
Um, and so we'll see. Uh, maybe the workaround is to ha- from the opposed is to not have the Senate or not try to push the House not to take it up. So we'll see where this goes. But this is a very spirited debate and people have very strong opinions on both sides of it. <laughs> Jeff, I know this is I'm like, what is the White House's position on this? Have we heard what President Biden thinks? <laughs> No, they they really haven't uh, delved into it yet. Uh, it was certainly asked about in the briefing this week, and as I rec- I think Jen Psaki said she'd look into it, like she does with other things that she's um, doesn't have an answer for in her notebook. Uh, as, at least as far as I'm aware, they haven't come out um, in favor or against at this point. I want to move to one other topic. President Biden withdrew his nomination of Sarah Bloom Raskin for the Federal Reserve's top bank regulator on Tuesday. The move came after Democratic Senator Joe Manchin said he would vote against her nomination alongside his Republican colleagues. Raskin had asked in a letter to the White House to withdraw her nomination earlier on Tuesday. Leanne, why was this such a controversial pick? Well... Um, Democrats say that it wasn't. Um, most Democrats, anyway, they say that she is superbly qualified and pretty much had the position in the, in the past. But the reason it was finally tanked is because Senator Joe Manchin, well, first, let's say Republicans were holding her up. They thought that she was going to in, use the Fed to influence um, energy policy. And so they were doing everything in their power in this evenly divided 50-50 Senate to block her nomination. And ultimately, they convinced Senator Joe Manchin to also oppose her. And for the same reason, we know Joe Manchin likes fossil fuels. He comes from a coal-producing state. Um, He has tried to slow down the transition to renewable and clean energy, and he used the same reason. He said because uh, Bloom Raskin does not – because she is not supportive of an above – all of the above energy policy, it's not something – she he can't support her. And so and that doomed that doomed her in the Senate. There was no Republican support for her. There was you know, only forty-nine Democrats that supported her. She was not gonna pass. And so really it came down to um to her her beliefs on energy and that some and of that's these- really what ended up tanking that. Yeah, I, I think that the uh, many of President Biden's nominees have moved forward and been confirmed. So it is rare for this uh, uh, to happen where a nomination has to be pulled. But for all of the moaning from Republicans, and it is uh, a loud um, moan uh, from them about how uh, they're the about the oil and gas lobby and um, the 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 huge influence of of people who support climate change initiatives, this was a really big win for those industries. They were really pushing against this nominee because she has been unafraid to make that connection, to talk about how climate change threatens economic stability. So I think that we should watch this not in isolation, but as part of um, a larger uh, a larger pattern of the power of the oil and gas lobby and the, the flex that they still have. Leanne, did you want to finish your thought there on Raskin? And can you also answer who's up for the position now, if we know? Um, yeah. No, I would, the only other thought I was going to add is some Republicans also complain about a revolving door. She goes to the Fed and then she goes to industry back and forth again. Um, that was the only thing I was going to say. Um, and actually, I'm not sure who is going to replace her. Jeff might know that, but um, I, I don't know. Uh, we do know that Jerome Powell, though, is expected— to be confirmed very soon for a second term. 
Jeff, you want to weigh in? Sure. Um, we don't know. The White House has not said yet. Um, what, the one thing that it will be possible now, as Leanne just referred to, is the other four members of what was a five-member slate of nominees for the Fed uh, for the Fed board will now will now be able to proceed. So I think the White House's plan at this point is to uh, let that go ahead. See Jerome Paul, excuse me, Jerome Powell uh, get reconfirmed, and the others uh, on that list. And then in the next couple weeks, come out with another name. One last piece of COVID news. On Tuesday, Pfizer and BioNTech announced they'll seek FDA authorization of a second COVID-19 booster shot for people 65 and older. And yesterday, Moderna said it'll seek FDA approval for a second booster for all adults. Eva, where can we expect these requests to go from here? Well, I, I'm not entirely sure. I, I would imagine um, it will move pretty quickly. Uh, Jeff and Leanne may know a little bit more information on the timeline happening um, on this. I can take that one. They, the, what, what happens is it'll go uh, in, into a, a decision-making process at the FDA. Uh, the CDC will also have to weigh in, and um, the scientists will, will, will weigh in, and, and then they'll make a decision. But it's, it wasn't a surprise that they, were, that they were making this request. It's ironic, the timing, because it came uh, uh, this week, as the as the White House, as we were discussing earlier, is requesting more funds uh, from Congress for the COVID response to pay for vaccines, and they would need money to pay for those boosters as well. But the data that they're citing is it comes, I think, in large part from Israel, which is showing that an additional booster does increase the chances of of preventing the spread of COVID, uh, particularly after the previous boosters' uh, effectiveness has waned. So to get back to your initial question, it'll just it'll go through an approval process for an emergency use authorization by the FDA. All right. Well, we'll have to leave it at that. Uh, thanks to Jeff Mason, White House correspondent for Reuters, Eva McKend, a national politics reporter with CNN, Leanne Caldwell, a Capitol Hill correspondent for NBC News. Thanks to all of you for joining us. You're listening to the News Roundup. We'll discuss the week's biggest headlines from around the world in just a moment. This is Morning. Support for NPR and the following message come from BetterHelp, offering online counseling. BetterHelp therapist Hesu Joe knows that lockdown has been hard on us as humans. We as people are hardwired to connect with others, which is why this whole time is so difficult. The connection that happens between people can be very powerful and how healing it can be to have a healthy relationship with someone. To get matched with a counselor within 48 hours and save 10%, go to BetterHelp.com slash 1A. This is the 1A podcast. I'm Nyla Boodoo of Axios Today, in for Jen White, and this is the News Roundup. COVID is surging in Europe. Progress is being made on the Iranian nuclear deal. And of course, the world's biggest news, the continued war between Russia and Ukraine. Our panel of experts are here to walk us through it. Joining us today, Amy McKinnon. She's a national security reporter at Foreign Policy. Hey, Amy. Hi. Also joining us is Justin Vogt, executive editor for Foreign Affairs. Justin, thank you for coming back on the Roundup. Thanks, Nyla. And Nancy Youssef is with us as well. She's a national security correspondent at The Wall Street Journal. It's great to have you with us, Nancy. Thank you so much. We start again in Eastern Europe with Russia's assault on Ukraine. Nancy, for people who are keeping count, today is day 23. Ukrainian President Zelensky has been on a video tour to Western governments, speaking to lawmakers here in the U.S., in Canada, and Germany this week. To what effect? I think to some effect. Uh, what's been... S- 
amazing to me, I've watched all three of his addresses, is the way he speaks in a way that really resonates with each audience. He there's he evokes um, historical references that I think are really touching to those audiences in the case of the United States. He talked about what's happening in Ukraine as a 9-11 every day. He made reference to Martin Luther King, where Martin Luther King said, I have a dream. He said, I have a need. And I think the net effect is that there's been a greater push for more advanced missile defense systems for Ukraine. This week, we heard more talk about getting Russian missile defense systems that the Ukrainians could use right away in a manner and with a level of urgency we hadn't heard before this week. And I think part of that speaks to how Mr. Zelensky addressed these audiences, how he put the the, on their shoulders, the expectation that they help defend Ukraine, because as he put it, this is not just the defense of one nation, but a, a defense of democratic values. Secretary Blinken told NPR this week that so far, President Putin has shown zero interest in finding ways to avoid further violence. We, over many months, offered President Putin off-ramps to avoid this aggression in the first place, and even since the aggression has been committed. Tragically, each and every time, instead of taking an off-ramp, he's pressed the accelerator. Justin, what signs, if any, are there that Putin has any reason to stop these bombardments? Very few signs of that. Very few. Um, I don't think any signs at this point. Uh, What you're seeing in Ukraine now is the result of a a failed strategy. Um, uh, Putin thought that he could carry out a swift overthrow and would be met with little resistance. Of course, that's not what happened. For the past four weeks, the Russian military has been trying to adjust and and failing. And what you're seeing with these attacks on civilian targets uh, that seem intended really to to sort of terrorize Ukrainians or to weaken their will to resist is, um, it it looks desperate, and I think that's uh, because it is. Uh, The plan didn't work, um, and they're they're floundering. Uh, As far as the off-ramps, the question you have to ask is, at this point, uh, what can Putin accept uh, and feel that he's not going to lose face at home? What can Ukraine accept and, and feel that the Ukrainian leadership is not going to feel that they sold out their, their country? Uh, and at this point, what can uh, NATO accept and feel that it's, it's not going to be a deal, if there's a deal that we're not going to be back in the same situation in a, in a matter of months, uh, a deal that will really hold? I think that the key, the key there, the thing to really look at is the, the Putin equation. Um, and what's hard to know exactly is how much of a loss can Putin get away with in terms of his domestic support? I think that's the hardest thing to measure right now. Diana emails, Putin thought he would could roll over Ukraine and that NATO would not respond to his invasion. Now that the possibility exists that Russia could be whooped by little brother Ukraine, Putin is baiting the U.S. and NATO to get into this fight. Biden is wise not to take the bait. That's an email from Diana. To that point, NBC's Lester Holt asks Zelensky this week if he appreciated President Biden's concerns about starting a World War III. Well, nobody knows whether it may have already started and what is the possibility of this war if Ukraine will fall. Amy, thinking about that, how steadfast is NATO's position on a no-fly zone? 
NATO officials and U.S. officials have been pretty clear thus far that um, they have absolutely no appetite to impose a no-fly zone over Ukraine, however painful it may be, um, I I think, to say that. you know, many have warned that this would essentially be tantamount to the U.S. getting into a head-to-head war with Russia because, you know, what it takes to maintain a no-fly zone is you have to take out um, Russian air defenses, you have to take out Russian anti-aircraft missiles. Some of those targets may be within Russian territory itself. You have to be willing to shoot down Russian jets directly. Um, and that's the kind of direct confrontation that the US or NATO and Russia didn't even get to um, in the Cold War. So this would just be a whole new frontier that none of us really know what that would look like. Um, and clearly, NATO officials are very keen to avoid that. But that said, I mean, it's very unclear how the next few weeks of this conflict are going to pan out. Russia is, incre- is increasingly using really savage tactics, siege tactics in cities like Mariupol, trying to surround the city and essentially starve it out and to try and starve the Ukrainians into, into capitulation. And, you know, one question I have had on my mind is, you know, if, if Russia becomes increasingly brutal, the more that the, the more that the gloves come off, that is going to increase the pressure on NATO, on Western countries to, to do more to support the Ukrainians in this fight. And, you know, Will that what will that support look like, and will it be too little, too late? President Zelensky was given a standing ovation by lawmakers in Germany this week that came after he accused members of the Bundestag of caring more about business than the plight of most Ukrainians. Here's Eric Vaud, who worked as a military advisor to the former German Chancellor Angela Merkel. He told the BBC Merkel did have the money to spend on her military, but her policy toward Russia now looks misguided. We uh, gave more money in the defense budget in uh, 2014, but we did not uh, change our policy towards Russia. Angela Merkel tried to include the Russians again, but I think uh, we, in the end we missed uh, uh, seven years and we should have started uh, to change completely our policy seven years ago and not today. Nancy, how many other people are thinking along these lines, how much this conflict is changing minds in Berlin about Germany's role in Europe and its relationship with Ukraine? I I think a lot of people are. I think we have to think about what happened in Ukraine as Europe's 9-11, in that this is a threat to the entire region and that you now have nations like Germany reconsidering their defense posture. What's interesting to me is for decades, the idea of encouraging Germany to bolster their defenses was something that was off-putting to much of Europe, given um, what happened um, in during World War II. And there was years then, in the last decade, trying to get uh, Germany to spend more than 2% of its GDP on defense. Since February 24th, when Russia um, entered Ukraine, 2% has now gone from being the, the ceiling to the floor, has gone from being the the maximum that you need to contribute to the minimum you need to contribute to defense spending. And and arguably, Germany has made incredible changes um, since the war began. If you'll recall, right before the invasion, they were offering helmets, and now they're being much more aggressive in facilitating um, support for the Ukrainians. It's it's a shift throughout Europe. It's a shift in thinking. It's a shift in expectations. And and we have to remember that, as you know, this is in 23 days that this has happened. Um, 
And it's not just one that's happening internally within Europe, but also in how the international community thinks about what Europe should be doing vis-a-vis its defense spending. Justin, so to Nancy's point, if this is a 9-11 moment, what's likely to be the result? Is this, are we thinking about a new world order here? Well, it, it, a lot depends on, on how events uh, play out. Um, you know, Nancy was right to, to, to talk about the history here with Germany, um, that, you know, the reason the post-war order or the liberal order, one of the, the, the big reasons that that worked uh, was that a unified Germany uh, no longer presented a threat uh, to its neighbors. That wasn't just a kind of orthodoxy or a sort of habit of mind or a kind of political preference on the Germans' part. That was a really vital part of convincing uh, the rest of Europe uh, to kind of go along with the idea of reunifying Germany, that Germany was going to be essentially have a pacifistic policy and that it wasn't going to pose the kind of threat it had posed in the past. Now, Russia is a different story, right? Um, the, the Soviet Union's collapse was seen at the time and, and since as a, a really a turning point in history. The Cold War had ended. Uh, we were now in this unipolar moment uh, with, uh, of an American sort of hegemony, a Pax Americana. In reality, uh, what really it represented was a temporary diminution in Russia's power. Um, and the reason for NATO expansion, right, the reason for allowing these Eastern European countries to join was that people in the United States and in Western Europe, but also people in Eastern Europe, didn't trust that someday uh, Russia wouldn't decide, uh, you know, we had this empire before, uh, we got knocked down, uh, but we'd like to stand it back up. And there's one version of, of reading what's happening now as having uh, sort of vindicated that view. Of course, the other side is to say, no, uh, what's happened is Russia responded to a kind of aggressive encroachment uh, in a way that it might not otherwise have done. President Joe Biden and China's Xi Jinping spoke earlier today with China's president reportedly saying, quote, the Ukraine crisis is something we don't want to see, end quote. Secretary of State Antony Blinken has said the U.S. will punish China if it helps Russia. Amy, can you help us understand what China's role is here? And do we know if they will or are helping Russia? Well, so far, China has tried to walk a fine line of trying to not really irritate Russia, but also not to irritate the West. And I think that's a position which is going to become increasingly difficult for them to maintain in the coming weeks. There were reports last weekend, at the beginning of this week, that Russia had asked China for support in this war. Interestingly, they they reported to have asked for um, help with providing meal kits for their troops, which really underscores the kind of difficult spot that, that Moscow is in right now, that they're even struggling with those kind of basic supplies. It's not clear whether China, how how China responded to those requests or how how warm they have been. But in their call today, I don't think we have yet seen a readout, but Biden was very much expected to try and lean on his Chinese counterpart to try and get them to do more to... um, to get Putin to bring an end to this war, because ultimately it's only you know it's Russia that launched this war, and it is is Putin that um, that can end is the one that can end it overnight. Um, so they're expected to Biden is expected to use that you know use China's role in this. They're becoming increasingly closer with Russia in recent years to try and get him to to persuade Putin to to come to the negotiating table and to find some kind of off ramp to this crisis. 
Whether or not the Chinese are going to be receptive to that, I think that remains to be seen in the days and weeks to come. But in one interesting, I think, barometer of a slight shift in Beijing is that Chinese state media in the past few days is increasingly describing this as as an all-out war um, and showing some very graphic images of of Russia's attack in Ukraine. So that does seem to suggest that they are, um, uh, there's a slight shift in their position. We got an email from James. There's a war in Ukraine because Russia invaded Ukraine without cause, which is, according to international law, the most grievous war crime, a crime of aggression. It is not technical or rocket science. It does not need a lawyer or even a journalist to interpret when Russia invaded Ukraine, it committed a war crime. Just say it. So we should know President Biden did actually call Putin a war criminal earlier this week, but the White House then walked that back. Nancy, calling something a war crime or someone a war criminal is an actual process, correct? That's right. There's a legal process. So one of the ways that the White House sort of qualified what was said is that um, the president was expressing his personal opinion. We later heard from Secretary of State Anthony Blinken that he shared that sentiment. But the legal process is something different, and then it leads to trials for war crimes. And so we have seen an international community that has stopped short of that. And it, But I think James is getting at this frustration that you're seeing among some that we are seen the bombing of civilians, maternity hospitals, more than 100 children killed, and yet an international community that is reticent to uh, more aggressively call it a war crime because of the implications that come with it, including fears that Russia could respond with chemical or uh, some sort of nuclear weapons strike in response. And so there's this fine line that you see the international community walking on. on. On one hand, they are describing um, uh, a Russian military that has proven um, unable to achieve its military goals in Ukraine as it sought out to do it, and at the same time, um, afraid for what Russia could do militarily next if the international community is more aggressive. And the use of um, that term war criminal um, in a legal sense would be an escalation, certainly um, in, in terms of how the international community is dealing with Russia. Well, regardless of what we're calling it, we're seeing millions of people fleeing Ukraine. And the prime minister of the Czech Republic has said his country can no longer accept refugees. An estimated 270,000 refugees from Ukraine have arrived in the Czech Republic since the Russian invasion last month. Most have fled to Poland. The U.S. says almost 2 million as of today. That's close to the entire population of Poland's capital, Warsaw. Warsaw's mayor told the BBC this week that his country is close to a breaking point. Most of the strain is on the local government, on the people, or on the ordinary people, on the civil society, which accepted Ukrainians to their homes. But much of that is improvised, and we cannot improvise anymore yeah. because two million Ukrainians, almost two million Ukrainians, crossed uh, the Polish-Ukrainian border. If we have two, three, four, five million more, then we are at capacity, and we're going to be overwhelmed. That's Warsaw's mayor. The BBC also reports almost 70,000 Ukrainian children now attend school in Poland. Nancy, David Miliband, the head of the International Rescue Committee, is going to join Jen on 1A on Monday. He told The New York Times, quote, hosting refugees is a global public good. We need to share the responsibility. How well is that need being shared? Well, let me back up and say... One of the things that we're seeing um, in the current um, populations that are leaving Ukraine, uh, Poland announced today that they've now had 2 million into their country, where 
earlier, you, you had people who usually um, had friends or family or the resources to get out of Ukraine quickly. We now have populations that n- don't necessarily have those options, don't have a place to go after they leave Poland. The other thing is we have people who are leaving who have seen war, which means that there are a lot of psychological um, issues that come with um, those refugees and what they're seeing. It's a different population. It's a troubled population. And, and, and so far, they've indicated that they're not um, as eager to leave Poland. Many envision going back. Many see a, a way to support themselves within Poland. On top of that, um, you've seen an international community that has taken in some refugees but cannot keep up with the pace of the the refugees coming out. And so um, a lot of them have stayed near Ukraine's borders. Uh, But at the same time, we've also heard a lot of refugees reticent at this point to leave and go further away because they envision going home And, and and I should also point out there's also one other complication that we forget about but I think is important, worth noting. For some, leaving is a challenge because of COVID restrictions that um, other nations put for people coming out um, of particular countries. And so all of it has created a situation where um, Poland is a different population than it was 23 days ago, a 5% increase in their population if every Ukrainian stayed in Warsaw, um, one out of six residents of that capital would be Ukrainian. And so you're seeing schools now um, filled with students. You're seeing um, uh, locals um, having to provide support. Um, you're seeing um, a real stretch on the system. And at the same time, I think you're seeing re- something really beautiful and that the polls continue to support this fundamental change in their in their landscape because of the crisis that's happening there. So it's a complex picture. We see people coming out, but the path for where they go changes not only because of what other nations want to do, but because what they themselves want to do. Every week, it's not the same person that coming out of Ukraine. We know it makes sense that Europe will carry the burden of those who continue to flee West. But Justin, what about the role of other countries like the U.S. to help meet this crisis? Yeah, I think first you'd look to the other European Union uh, states, uh, uh, Germany, France, the U.K. I think the, the thing to keep in mind here is to go back to the refugee crisis of 2015 um, when you had huge numbers of uh, Syrian Afghan and other refugees um, arriving in Europe. And you'll recall that this led to a, a, a political crisis in a lot of these countries. Now, the interesting distinction here, and it's a distinction that I think doesn't look great um, if you're in another part of the world outside of Europe, is that there does seem to be a, a lot more um, sense of a welcoming spirit to people who were coming from Ukraine than there was to other people who were coming from places with even in even more desperate uh, circumstances and even more desperate situations. Um, and I think there's a, it's fair to point out that it, to, to, to an objective observer, it, it looks xenophobic and, and, and even potentially racist uh, that different refugees from different parts of the world seem to be treated differently. Uh, there was a lot of scaremongering about, uh, you know, refugees coming from places like Afghanistan and Syria. Um, wh- I don't know whether the, the absence of, of that kind of, um, you know, pro- provocative 
uh, scapegoating will make it easier to settle uh, Ukrainian refugees further west. And I think there's no doubt that that is going to have to happen. Uh, Nancy is, makes such a great point that, you know, refugees flee, but most of the time, or much of the time, they want to go back. Uh, they are not necessarily economic migrants. They're not necessarily just using, you know, this horrendous catastrophe as some sort of excuse to go somewhere uh, where they'll have a better life. Most people want to go home. Um, and, you know, but I think the problem is in Ukraine, I just don't see a, a, a great chance of that happening anytime soon. So I do think that we're going to start hearing calls for other EU countries uh, and potentially countries around the world, as you pointed out, North America and elsewhere, uh, to, to take some of these refugees with them. I'll point out that in Japan, for example, uh, a place that has not historically been hugely welcoming of uh, migrants of any kind, refugees, asylum seekers, or immigrants, uh, the Japanese government is calling uh, refugees from Ukraine evacuees. Um, so e even though the kind of uh, ethnic and religious dimension uh, that you know, led to this kind of ugly politics in 2015 isn't there uh, necessarily, it's, it's, um, it's not necessarily going to be an easy political move for a lot of countries to suddenly open uh, their arms to the Ukrainians, regardless of, of just how desperate the need is. Nancy, to Justin's point, what other refugee crisis are, are we seeing around the world right now? Well, I think, that as, as Justin mentioned, you know, we think of um, the crises in Syria and, and other parts of the Middle East as in the past. They are not. They um, continue to um, affect the world population. And in fact, the events happening in Ukraine could could actually exacerbate them if you, for example, um, see Russian movements in Syria change as they pull resources out, you could see changes there. The other thing that we're starting to see is also uh, effects of food shortages because so much of, for example, places like the Middle East depend on uh, Ukraine and Russia for wheat. And so um, the, the crises that are sort of ongoing are not just refugee ones, but there are second and third order effects from from the war in Ukraine that are that are potentially going to shape the in each region in the world in its own unique way. I'm I'm particularly interested in the Middle East because you're starting to see those effects already, and I think there's a worry that it could lead to another refugee crisis. As you know, in places like Lebanon, there's been a huge exodus of Lebanese after the explosion there in 2020. And so what you're seeing is, a, at least in the Middle East, a region that has dealt with refugee crises now um, having to face the effects of what's happened in Ukraine on their own f uh, food supplies and, and potentially on their own security. Let's move on to another story that people may have seen this week. Russian television producer Marina Osvinikova has been fined the equivalent of $280 and could be facing up to 15 years in prison because she interrupted a live evening news broadcast on Channel One with a sign that read, Stop the War. She released a video on social media prior to the on-camera protest. 
То, что сейчас происходит на Украине, это преступление. И Россия страна агрессор. И ответственность за эту агрессию лежит на совести только одного человека. What's going on now in Ukraine is a crime, she's saying, and Russia is the aggressor. The responsibility for this aggression lies only on one person, and that person is Vladimir Putin. My father is Ukrainian, she said, and my mother is Russian, and they have never been enemies. This necklace on my neck symbolizes that Russia needs to stop this fratricidal war immediately, and our brotherly nations will have a chance to make peace. Justin, what's been the international response to this clear act of defiance against President Vladimir Putin on Russian state television, no less? Well, I'll I'll first tell you my response. Wow, what the courage and the bravery of this um, is remarkable. Um, It's it's undeniable. I, I, you know, we we all like to think, what would we do in in situations uh, like this? And and the risk that uh, she's taken is is extraordinary. I also, though, want to point out uh, that we shouldn't uh, we shouldn't overlook the massive risk that that opposition media in Russia have been have been taking for decades. Um, you know, this was someone who worked at, at state uh, at TV and decided to kind of break with the party line. It's a certain takes a certain kind of courage to do that, uh, but it also takes a, a, an incredible amount of courage and determination and and a kind of principled commitment to journalism and, and free speech and, and democratic and liberal values to work in Russia as an opposition uh, journalist, as someone who's not going to toe the state uh, line. Those places have been shut down. Uh, uh, the Echo of Moscow Radio, uh, TV Rain. Uh, they, they were few and far between, and now they have really been um, uh, eliminated. As far as, a, as an, a, a, an international reaction goes, um, I think there's been a lot of you know, uh, outrage and anger and, and, and condemnation of this. Um, what that means inside Russia, though, is not particularly clear to me. Um, you know, the, the Russians have done a, an amazing job of uh, shutting down discourse uh, before the war and, and since. Um, you know, they've restricted access to the BBC, uh, the Deutsche Welle, Voice of America, Radio Free Europe. Facebook has been blocked. Access to Twitter is restricted. Instagram was banned. Uh, YouTube and Telegram are still available. Uh, but, you know, it, they've made it very hard to get information, and they've made it very scary for anyone to, to, to say anything other than uh, what uh, uh, Putin and his regime wants them to say. There's, uh, there's a new law that uh, punishes anyone for, for spreading, you know, quote-unquote fake news with up to 15 years in prison. Um, any public activity that is aimed at discrediting the use of the Russian military, right? In other words, saying that we're at war, that can get you in prison for up to three years. Um, it, this is a, what, what you're seeing in Russia right now is a, an attempt to impose on Russia the kind of media controls that exist in China. And whether that it's going to be successful, I, I, so far I've been surprised in a way by the extent of its success. It's one thing uh, to impose these kind of controls on China where you've had decades and decades of repression and decades and decades of, of a, a lack of a free press. Russia, for, for, since the uh, collapse of the Soviet Union, has had a relatively free press. It wasn't without risk. There were reprisals and, and, and reporters and journalists were targeted. But the public got used to being able to get free information and a wide range of opinions. Suddenly that's been shut down. Whether they're going to accept it and whether uh, the regime will get away with it, I don't know. President Vladimir Putin has been raising his tenor against any Russians opposing the war. In a televised address earlier this week, Putin said, quote, 
the Russian people will always be able to distinguish true patriots from scum and traitors and simply spit them out like a fly that accidentally flew into their mouth, unquote. Nearly 15,000 Russians have been detained since the start of the Russian invasion. That's according to OVD Info, and that's an independent human rights project documenting political persecution in Russia. Amy, how far is the Kremlin willing to go here in its crackdown against protesters? I mean, I think that's the question that we're all waiting and watching with trepidation to see, but I fear it's going to be pretty far. I mean, Russia has become increasingly authoritarian over the past kind of 18 months, um, really beginning with the poisoning of Alexei Navalny in 2020. That seems to have been um, the first sign that there had been a real shift in the Kremlin from tolerating a low level of dissent as a kind of outlet uh, for public dissatisfaction to moving to try and fully eradicate any outlets. And so whilst we have seen a real acceleration in this in the past three weeks since Russia's invasion of Ukraine, this is really um, an acceleration of a trend which has been going on for the past year and a half now. Um, And I mean, almost, you know, in the space of just a few weeks, Russia has gone from being a an authoritarian country, but one which did have some last vestiges of, of free media to, you know, increasingly looking like the Soviet Union. I mean, I I don't know, I don't think any of the journalists that I know in Russia are still there and any that are, um, are keeping their, uh, certainly keeping their heads down at this moment. And I think there's um, real fears of, of what's to come in the coming weeks. I mean, there's been some very serious questions from Western officials that I've spoken to about, about about Putin's state of mind and the quality of information that he's getting. I mean, he's been very isolated during the pandemic. He's They've taken COVID restrictions extremely uh, seriously. Any officials that want to meet with Putin have had to isolate, self-isolate themselves for two weeks before meeting with the Russian president. And so I think there's questions about, you know, what kind of information is he getting? And we know that as authoritarian leaders become more authoritarian, there's this kind of downward spiral whereby they get worse and worse information that leads to worse decision-making. They also become more paranoid because they they kind of realize that they don't have a good overview of what's going on, about where there may be pockets of dissent or threats to their rule. And so they, you know, they start to feel backed into a corner. And the only, the only way this this goes is bad and 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 downhill as as he may seek to to stamp out any any remaining last vestiges of dissent. Right, and Russia has responded to severe U.S. economic sanctions by imposing sanctions on President Biden, Secretary of State Antony Blinken, and several other high-level U.S. officials. However, they are seen as largely symbolic. Republican Senator Lindsey Graham from South Carolina spoke on CBS News, and he's calling on Russians and American companies to act against Vladimir Putin. I'm not asking to invade Russia to take him out. I'm not asking to send American ground forces in Ukraine to fight the Russian army. I am asking the Russian people to rise up and end this reign of terror for you and the world at large. That if you follow Putin, uh, you're going to have zero future. I encourage what Zelensky said, that every American company leave Russia right now. Leave today. We know Coca-Cola, McDonald's and Starbucks have all left Russia at this point. Justin, what do we know about the remaining companies and their impact on the Russian economy? Well, I think that the big moves have been made um, already. And, uh, you know, uh, calling for a senator to call on this, um, it's a natural thing to do. It's It's a good way to 
to uh, you know play to American sense of outrage uh, on this over this. Um, and I, you know, I, I think that there are still uh, I know that there are still companies doing business in Russia. Um, some of them have pointed out that you know they they don't want to abandon their employees there. Uh, that's sort of one reason that they've given uh, for why they would uh, continue operations. For some of them, it takes a little longer t- to wind down, and you may see. Uh, uh, more flight uh, from the country. I think the longer this goes on uh, and the higher the costs become and the lower, quite frankly, the margins, the profit margins one can uh, expect to extract from one's Russian operations, uh, the easier this call will become uh, for uh, many American businesses who may not have wanted to stick their necks out uh, politically for whatever reason, uh, but may come to make the same decision regardless purely uh, uh, by looking at their balance sheets. Let's turn to another story. Two British-Iranian nationals were reunited with their families this week after spending more than five years imprisoned in Iran. Nazanin Zakari Ratcliffe, a charity worker, and Anoushe Ashuri, a retired chemical engineer, were arrested in Iran and accused of plotting against the Iranian government. Nancy, what exactly were they accused, these British-Iranian nationals accused of doing? So one was accused of um, plotting to topple the Iranian government and sentenced to five years. The other was accused of spying on behalf of Israel and sentenced to, I believe, a dozen years. I should note, though, that it was never clear what the case was made against them. There's no evidence of that. There was no accusations by anyone else outside of Iran that they were doing it. Rather, it seems that these were British nationals who were in Iran dual nationals who were held perhaps as a way of leverage by the Iranians. We have seen this practice before where they have used and uh, citizens from the United States and now the UK, arrested them, charged them, and as a condition of their withdrawal of their release, they've asked that the respective countries pay back um, payments that were made right before the 1979 revolution for Iranian weapons that were never delivered to Iran. And that seems to have happened in this case. In 2016, um, the U.S. um, released $400 million that was owed to Iran for these weapons that were never delivered. And and around the same time, four Americans were released. The Brits released $521 million around the same time that these two British nationals were released. What was interesting to me is that the British made it very clear that this there was a concern that this money could go towards funding military activity by Iran in places like Syria and Lebanon and Yemen, and that they asked that this be put forward um, towards humanitarian efforts. Whether that will happen, we will see. But it's, it is a tactic that Iran has used before, charging um, U.S. and now British nationals on seemingly spurious charges and then leveraging that to get back some of these funds. Meanwhile, diplomats are in Vienna to discuss salvaging the terms of the 2015 Iran nuclear deal. Justin, how will the release of these British Iranians affect those discussions? Well, everyone connected to the talk says that they're they're uh, unrelated or adjacent, or they use some sort of euphemism to suggest that uh, they're not related. Uh, they're clearly related. Uh, Nancy pointed out that in 2016, uh, something similar happened, and that was tied around the same time that the um, that the uh, initial deal had been done. Um, the the thing that you know what happened here was about a month ago uh there seemed to have been a lot of momentum towards uh, a new deal russia's war on ukraine sort of threw a wrench in that 
Um, and, you know, what we're now seeing, it's, it's interesting. It, it seems like um, the, those problems have been, um, have been overcome uh, to, to a certain extent. You know, uh, Russia had demanded guarantees that Russian trade with Iran wouldn't be affected by the, the, the sanctions uh, on Russia uh, over its invasion uh, on Ukraine. And Western powers said, well, that, no, that's not acceptable. Um, so it looked like what Russia was doing was using the nuclear deal as leverage, saying that Western sanctions you know, were, were an impediment to salvaging the, the JCPOA, the, the Iran nuclear deal. Um, now, the State Department at the time, uh, uh, Ned Price, said that you know, the, the revival of the deal uh, it couldn't be a, an escape hatch for, for Russia, those were his words, to avoid the sanctions or for allowing money to be funneled to Russia through Iran. Um, and, and in fact, at one point, Washington even raised the possibility of striking a, a separate deal and excluding Moscow uh, from, the, from the new Iran deal. Um, ultimately, Russia has said that it has received guarantees that it could keep you know, carrying out its work as a party to the deal, um, although uh, the, the United States has denied this. So obviously, there's, there's some very careful, nuanced diplomacy uh, going on, deal-making, uh, because m- all of the parties to this deal uh, want the deal to happen. They do at this point. I mean, there's, there, and, and, and the basic outlines of it, whether it's a good deal, whether it'll work, put that aside for a second. The, the point is that the parties to it were in agreement that they wanted it. Russia kind of, uh, uh, you know, um, threw a wrench into it, but now it's, it seems to have been worked out again. So I, I do think uh, amongst people I talk to, it seems likely uh, that in, in the weeks to come, we are going to, to see a new deal. Now, moving on to a much more sobering story out of the Middle East, Saudi Arabia executed 81 people on Saturday in the largest mass execution in the country's modern history. These executions were men convicted of crimes ranging from murder to association with militant groups. Nancy, what else do we know about what happened here and will the U.S. respond? Well, what's interesting is we don't know much because these are not public trials. We don't have any sense of the evidence put forth against them when the trials happen. We we know that um, a notable portion of them, 47, were Shia who have been historically treated like second-class citizens in Saudi Arabia. We know that seven were from Yemen, one was from Syria, and and it comes at a time when, um, and, and just to give you a sense of how diff, how high this number was, there were 67 executed all of last year, 27 in 2020. This was 81 people at one time. And because we don't know anything about even how it happened, when it happened, the cases around it, um, I think it speaks to a, a Saudi Arabia that sees the world community focused on Ukraine and 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 an international community that has not responded as aggressively as I think some had hoped to the murder of Jamal Khashoggi, to human rights violations by the the, the kingdom itself. What's interesting to me is that this was announced over the weekend. On Wednesday, Boris Johnson, the prime minister of the UK, visited Saudi Arabia. And so the visual was not an international community outraged by the, the number and the, mis- the inability to tell anyone what happened, but that there was a, uh, an international community that was saying, 
at least part of it anyway, that that in light of the fears about global supply demands not being met for oil, that we need to continue to have a relationship with Saudi Arabia. So we saw um, increased brutality being conducted by the kingdom and an international community that has been reticent to respond in any aggressive way. And it comes at a time when I think some are turning to or hoping to turn to Saudi Arabia to help meet some of the oil shortages that will be brought forth by the restrictions on, on oil for from Russia. Let's end this hour on COVID. While case numbers are following falling in the U.S. right now, those living in Europe cannot say the same. Cases are up by 84 percent in Finland, 31 percent in the U.K. That's data from Johns Hopkins. Amy, what's causing this European surge? So I think, uh, you know, certainly looking at the case in the U.K., um, Anthony Fauci said to CNN earlier this week that, you know, his British counterparts have kind of pinpointed what they think to be three factors which have driven this surge. Um, the first is that there is now a this new kind of subvariant of Omicron, which they're calling the BA B eight point two variant, um, which is even more transmissible than than Omicron was, um, but also that Britain has dropped pretty much all of its uh, COVID regulations, all of its mask restrictions, and so people are you know trying to get back to normal, trying to get get back to to life as it was before the pandemic broke out, and that there's more intermingling and indoors, and of course that you know, will boost uh, COVID transmission numbers. But then also the third factor is that, you know, a lot of people who got COVID early on in the pandemic and who may have had some natural immunity um, or or perhaps, you know, people who got uh, the early vaccines but didn't get recent boosters, that that immunity may be, may be starting to wane. And so we may be beginning to see people get reinfections or infections in, in, more, in more people who were vaccinated earlier. And I think that, you know, what we saw before in late December, before the holidays was that the UK kind of got hit with Omicron before the United States. And so I'm, I'm watching this very closely of how this plays out in the UK to see whether it's a harbinger of what we may come to see in the US in the coming weeks. We've just got about 30 seconds, Amy, but is there any hope right now that in our global world we can contain a surge? I think that, look, vaccines have proven to be incredibly effective. And I think the number one priority remains getting vaccines um, and particularly getting vaccines out to countries which still have not had enough uh, enough uh, access to them. So that's countries in the global south and in, in the developing world. Um, but I think all, you know, I think governments around the world are realizing, and even in China, which is moving away from its zero COVID strategy, that we are reaching a point of having to find ways to kind of live with the virus as part of our lives and that any prospects of of getting stamping this out uh, fully seem to be quite remote. My thanks this week to Foreign Policy's Amy McKinnon, and my thanks also to Foreign Affairs' Justin Vote, and from the Wall Street Journal, National Security Correspondent Nancy Youssef. Paige Osborne is our managing producer. John Quinlan Hill is our senior producer. 1A's audio engineer and sound designer is Mike Kidd. He gets technical assistance from Adrian Danhauser. Aileen Humphreys is the producer and editor of 1A On Demand, and Barb Anguiano produces our podcast. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Nyla Boodoo. This is 1A.